everyone. In this episode, we are talking to Wendy Vogel on topics such as the nude photography, including both male and female. We talked about the works of Paul Kuiker, Lee Freelander, Robert Maplethorpe, Carmen Wynant, among many others. We also talked about art institutions and some of their decisions that are quite controversial. Wendy Vogel is a writer, critic, and independent curator, a former editor at Flash Art International, Modern Painters, and Art in America. She writes regularly about art and culture for a number of publications, including Art Forum, Art Agenda, and Moose. Wendy's research interests include legacies of feminist and identity-based practice, as well as the performative and ethical questions around contemporary art production and criticism. Without further ado, let's get into it. So, since your research interests include legacies of feminist practice, I'm curious as to what you think of the nude photography, especially the ones with the female nude. And I want to start small by focusing on this one photographer, Paul Kuiker, because the other day I was reading this interview on British Journal of Photography where Paul Kuiker. Is admitting that he's objectifying women in his work, but he's imbuing it with a new meaning that somehow legitimizes his behavior. And I want to know what you think of his work. I think his practice, in a way, he has a political stance in this idea of what he means by objectifying the female body. As far as I know, his most famous projects, he's pairing female nudes with. Pictures of animals, and I think there's a third component in that. So what he's trying to do, as far as I can tell, is he's trying to de-aestheticize the female nude. And to me, I think of that as a political project, because so often when we see images of nude female bodies or bodies that are coded as female, they're Eroticized. They're also、um, fetishized in terms of maybe seeing a part of the body standing in for the whole. So whether that's like a sexy foot, or of course the way that certain body parts are sexualized that don't actually have anything to do with sexual reproduction. To me, it seems as though he his idea of objectification is playing into this. Larger political project about how can we see a body outside of this sexualized, sanitized, and commercialized context. Oh, I also read that Paul Koiker is compensating his nude models, his plus size nude models, at or higher than the industry standard. So to me, there's also a political agenda behind the way that he's thinking about. How the images are produced. So he's different from those photographers who lack the awareness of treating their models with respect. I think so.、Um, I mean, I certainly see also in the way that he's shooting some of his nudes. I see a relationship between him and the surrealist photographer Hans Belmer. But Hans Belmer was often using dolls and was subjecting them to almost these like torturous. Poses and devices, like he'd take these doll parts that would be like tying them up with rope and throwing them down the stairs. And as far as I can tell, Paul Koiker is not trying to subject his models to mistreatment. It's more in the way that he's photographing them. 
it seems to me that it's part of a political project. What about other photographers who are more well known in the history of photography? Like, what about Lee Freelander's nude? I think Lee Freelander also was, in his way, trying to show a non-airbrushed, or I guess I should say, proto-airbrushed female body. His whole concept of photographing the female nude was to see the nude in its most natural state. So, women that had bruises or. I don't know, pockets of cellulite, that sort of thing. So I think that Lee Friedlander is a little bit more of a complicated figure in terms of thinking about his relationship to feminism, both in part because of the time period in which he was working. Um, he was working in the 50s and the 60s previous to the emergence of the women's liberation movement and other kind of civil rights movements. And of course, he also has photographs that are considered like very controversial like there's um a series where he's following women on the street so that could seem scary imposing dangerous but I think that there's also an element of critique in the way that he's composing his photographs so it's either a critique of the way that we presume that women are always in danger or like I said that this idea of this idealized body that he's trying to he's trying to upset our expectations a bit as a viewer Turning our conversation to female photographer who does female nude, I want to talk about the works of Carmen Weinand and her works at MoMA in two thousand eighteen, titled "My Birth." Interestingly, she mentioned in another interview that her professor at UCLA back then, Mary Kelly, who refused to represent the female form in her work, both nude or unnude, because she refused to have it become a signifier. What do you think of this radical attempt? Mary Kelly is part of the second wave feminist generation, so she started making artwork in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. And in fact, I should say, she herself、um, says that an artist can't be feminist, but they can be aligned with the feminist movement or can be aligned with feminist principles. So that was a little bit of a misspeak on my part. But Mary Kelly was part of a generation that was. Engaged in this whole political critique of the way that commercial imagery circulated, and for her as an artist, she wanted to embark on making a different kind of work, and work that was itself really controversial. So, Mary Kelly's most famous body of artwork is called Postpartum Document. It was an artwork that she created over five or six years when she became a mother. So she was working with her child in a way. And was documenting extensively the labor of what it was to be a young mother, and she made these little onesies for her child that had like psychoanalytic diagrams on them. And in a way, even though the kind of information that she was presenting was clinical, it was seen as really controversial because. In a way, she was exposing the fact that the work of mothering isn't always pleasant and it isn't always loving. Or I shouldn't say that the work isn't loving, but that there is something that is learned about being a mother. It doesn't just come naturally. So Mary Kelly was embarking on a really different kind of work that I would say fuses the formal strategies of conceptualism with the ideas of feminism. 
And yeah, I think for her, she was working at a time where it seemed impossible to create images of the female body that could be perceived as being kind of critical on their own. And this was really a highly debated topic in the age of second wave feminism, which was coming on the heels of the sexual liberation movement that was really co-opted by the male left. Uh, During the second wave feminist movement, there were also many artists that were working to represent their own bodies. And some of that work was deemed highly controversial in the art world. So for instance, the artist Hannah Wilkie made, it was incredibly beautiful. And she made a lot of work showing her own body in the 70s and got so much blowback from certain sectors of the feminist movement that she made this famous poster at the end of the 70s that said, beware of fascist feminism. And she's posed nude in it with a with man's business tie on. Um, there was also a really famous advertisement that the artist Linda Benglis uh, created for Art Forum. You may know it, where she, it was 1974, and she had an exhibition coming up at Paula Cooper Gallery. And she posed in Art Forum magazine, nude, greased up, with a huge double-sided dildo that she was holding in her hand. And this advertisement was really offensive to a couple of the editors at Art Forum who were young feminist editors, and they quit the magazine because of it. They quit working at Art Forum and they formed their own magazine called October, and it's still going today. And it's a very heavy, philosophically driven journal of contemporary art. So just to say that there were a variety of approaches that feminists were taking in the 1970s, and Mary Kelly fell on the side of she wanted to do something different and did not want to get into that arena of trying to figure out how to represent the female body in a way that took it out of this context of being able to be kind of co-opted by the male gaze. But I think that Carmen Winant, much like Paul Koiker, to me, I think that she's using female nudes in a way to de-aestheticize them or to show them in a way that has never been shown before. So her work that's best known to date is her birth series where she collages many, many images, all archival of women giving birth. And it's showing the gory stuff of giving birth. And she exhibited that work at MoMA in a relatively narrow hallway where people had to walk through this canal-like space and experience these images. And it's a really powerful work because the female body is so often sexualized, but the actual act of birth and the image of the female genitalia going through the process of birth is seen as something that's like so abject. There almost isn't even a history of it in terms of pictorial representation um, from the painter's side. I mean, there are just so few images that men have made of that that are not pornographic. And for her to take all these images, which weren't necessarily created in a fine art context, they were more, they're more of like a medical context or um, for her, because she's really interested in this history of feminist representation, a lot of the images were taken from feminist sources, feminist magazines, feminist guides to giving home birth or what have you. 
um, to me, again, I think she's thinking about the work of Mary Kelly, but she's part of a new generation and is saying, like, there still is work to be done in this arena. There are still ways to depict the female form. And of course, I want to add that not all people who have vaginas or uteruses are necessarily female or women, but I'm or I'm using the word female here instead of women because what sex someone's body is assigned to isn't necessarily equated to their gender. So I hope I'm being sensitive in my language here. What about the male nude? Do you think that we treat it differently from the female nude? In terms of representing the male nude, the full male nude, it's not done nearly as often in the history of art and in the history of photography. I mean, certainly there's like Michelangelo's David and there are sculptures of classical antiquity and particularly in photography, I think it's much less likely to see the male nude because the male nude is perceived as somehow threatening. Um, And if you think about this, this even overlaps with like cinema in the Western context, or I guess I should say the American context, because I don't think this is necessarily true in Europe. For a very long time, if there was any full frontal male nudity in a film, it would automatically get rated X. The male nude was automatically perceived to be more sexually aggressive than the than the female nude. Right. There are also works that are made by or of people who are queer identified, like Robert Maplethorpe's work. Robert Maplethorpe is a really interesting artist because the perception of his work changed during the time that he was alive and has changed even afterwards. There's a cultural critic named Kobina Mercer who wrote about Robert Maplethorpe's Black Book series, which is a series of photographs of male nudes in confrontational or provocative um, sexual positions. And during the time that Robert Maplethorpe was alive in the mid-1980s, Kobina Mercer wrote an article that called out Robert Maplethorpe for his racial fetishism. And in a way said that this work could not be dissociated from these problematic notions of seeing Black men as other and was playing upon these sexual stereotypes of Black men being kind of hypersexualized and also seen as primitive or somehow different than, than white men and, and distinct from the white male gaze. Right around the time that Robert Maplethorpe died, there was a major exhibition of his work in 1989 that was famously censored, that was going to be on view at multiple U.S. museums. And after he died, Kobina Mercer looked back at his previous writing about his work and thought about the controversy surrounding Maplethorpe's museum exhibition and revised his thinking. And he said, Robert Maplethorpe's work is really doing something deeply psychological. It's exposing this idea of what is the repressed. And he came to see his work in a more generous light. Some of the photographers I just spoke about who were working with the female nude, they have a political position to, in a way, de-aestheticize the female nude or to take the female nude out of the context in which we usually see it. And Mabel Thorpe was doing the same thing often with his nudes, but he was aestheticizing the kinds of bodies or the kinds of sexual practices that wouldn't ordinarily be seen as mainstream or beautiful. So he was 
photographing female bodybuilders or um, queer subjects in a way that was very classical, you know, beautiful lighting, so that they almost looked like sculptures of antiquity, even though they were posed in a way that, as I said, would be hard to, for previous generations, be um, dissociated from the world of pornography. Since you talked about Maplethorpe's work being called out in the 80s, I'm wondering what do you think that, in general, the ethics should resign in the art-making process, or even should art and morality be intertwined? Yes, I do think that there is an ethical space in art making, but I also am thinking a lot about this quote of intention doesn't equate to impact. And so that I suppose also gives me a little bit of pause because as a creator, you can have the best intentions, but the person that's in the photograph or the person who ends up looking at the photograph may not necessarily perceive your intentions as you have set them out to be. I think that artists should always adopt an ethical position and what that looks like is also variable across time. I think one of the things that we've been talking about already is how these strategies around representation have been politicized in different ways over different eras. So for instance, some second wave feminists said, there's no way for me to represent the female body in a way that can politically align with my position. But as time goes by, different strategies appear open and an audience appears more open to those kinds of strategies as well. Yeah, and, and the way that we view photographers' work also changes over time. Um, last year, I wrote a piece about the artist Nikki S. Lee, who was working in the 1990s, and she made this entire series of projects that were called projects where she would try to blend in with a certain kind of subculture. So whether that was old people that she met in a park in Queens or skateboarders or her most controversial projects where she uh, infiltrated and befriended people in Hispanic communities and African-American communities. At the time that she was making this work, people absolutely loved it. And in retrospect, there have been people across the political spectrum who have said, this work is ethically problematic. This is essentially an artist doing blackface. So while her ethics as an artist, as a Korean-born woman, let me explore what this notion of American identity is all about, or let me celebrate these cultures, how it might appear to an audience may look completely different. So I think that, yes, there's certainly an ethics in art making, but there's also the ethics of the creator, and then there's the way that we as an audience may read the work. Building on top of what you said about how our collective understandings of a work of art changes over time, how do you think that public discourse and curators and art historians are playing their roles in shaping our understandings of art? Um, I certainly think that they are. I think exhibitions, writing, and beyond exhibitions, I mean, now, of course, in the age of COVID, we're experiencing so much work online. I do think that those interpretive frameworks are really important. This is, again, a U.S.-based kind of observation, but I'm not sure if you've been following the controversy surrounding an exhibition that was planned to go on view in a couple of U.S. museums this year of Philip Guston's work. Uh, Philip Guston is an artist who 
got his start in the 1930s during the New Deal period. He was, I believe, working with the Works Progress Administration. He was very leftist. He's an American Jewish artist who started making work about racism and the Ku Klux Klan in the 30s and in the 40s, some of which were perceived as so offensive to police that police destroyed a mural that he had made of depicting the lynching of a black man. And further on in his career, he became an abstract expressionist and one of the best known abstract expressionists. And then in the 1970s, he returned to painting figuration and made these cartoonish paintings, sort of pathetic paintings of KKK figures in the 70s. And his work was planned to have a major retrospective that took place in five museums. And the retrospective was postponed for four years. The curator allegedly had spent all summer rewriting their wall labels and rethinking the context of how would we view these images of violence against Black people and the KKK in light of the uprisings that happened this summer following the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and countless other um, BIPOC people. There's been an outcry in the art world about museums preemptively canceling shows thinking that they will be controversial or that there will be protests from the audience. And there's been a number of people who have said this is outrageous. We need to trust the audience more. And the curators have done all this work to create an interpretive framework that where an audience can understand that this person is aligned with the right side of history. I do think that Philip Guston's work is important, but there have also been people speaking on the other side, including Jerry Saltz, who has said, let's also consider the fact that we're at a moment in history where BIPOC voices are more important to hear from than ever. And if we are positing this American Jewish artist as the artist that we need to look toward in terms of representing racial strife, like, isn't that a problem? Additionally, on the curatorial side in the museums, none of the curators who worked on this exhibition are people of color. So there's this other hurdle, even though there were catalog entries in the book that came out to accompany the exhibition that were written by Black artists, there was no one on the museum side doing that work. So it's complicated. Yes, I think that curatorial voices are really important. And I think that we need to also have diversity within those spaces. Yes, I think our institutions have a lot of space for improvement. And recently, there's also this incident involving within museums, use of unconsented works from Black artists without giving them proper compensation. Can you talk about it? So the Whitney had planned an exhibition called Collective Actions, Artists' Interventions in the Time of Change. This was planned very quickly in August, and the show was meant to open last month in September. And as part of this exhibition, they wanted to show a portfolio that an artist collective called Sea in Black produced over the summer. So this group of artists who are Black artists had created a um, small photography portfolio that was sold at a low cost to benefit 
organizations that were helping BIPOC LGBT people during the time of COVID and during the time of the uprisings. So they produced it quickly at low cost. The idea was let's do it as a fundraiser. Let's get as much money as possible and let's hope to lower the barrier so that people who aren't museums, who aren't major collectors can own some interesting artwork. So it's my understanding that a person who worked at the Whitney, whose name is Faris Wabe, purchased a portfolio from this site, which was underpriced. And his position at the Whitney is director of research. So he was listed as the curator of the show. So it is true that museums mostly collect through gifts, through gifts by collectors and things like that. But the thing is that most of the time when people who are gifting to a museum who are a collector are either buying directly from the artist or buying from a gallery that has a system set up in place so that the artist can be properly compensated. And the controversy around this exhibition is not only that the Whitney acquired these works through this kind of like backdoor dealing, but that it was also like a bargain basement sale price. And the artists, to their credit, got together in solidarity and basically like bombed the hell out of the Whitney over social media and said, we don't want to participate in this show. You've acquired our work in a way that is not affording us proper compensation. What's interesting is that I've had a couple of conversations with people just through other work assignments and some of them have been older artists and they've said like, well, what's the big deal? I mean, ultimately these people are going to be exhibited in the Whitney. Isn't it a net positive for artists to get exposure in this way. And I said, well, I think it's time for us to change the dialogue around that because exposure doesn't necessarily mean that the opportunities are just gonna continue to pile up. And also we have to take a stand. How do we change a precedent without artists sort of saying no? Do you know if there's any other institutions that fail to treat artists equally? I think, unfortunately, that many museums have a history of not treating artists equally, whether that means that their collections are unbalanced or whether artifacts or other art objects have come into the collection through nefarious means. I mean, when I think about the history of museums in the West and how they've acquired, let's say, historical objects from Asia, Africa, Oceania, South America, the way that those objects come in through into collections are through colonial expeditions or, you know, just downright thievery. So I think that there are major inequities that have to be addressed. I'm sure that there are museums that have better policies in terms of collecting uh, work by living artists. And I hope that this is a moment where museums will really step up and try to make their collections and their exhibitions more equitable in terms of living artists. But there's also this question around divestment and repatriation of objects. There was, um, there's an artist, William Villalongo, who for a while this summer was posting um, potential action steps for museums to make their institutions more equitable. And one of his action steps was like, return all of your African artifacts to museums in Africa, make a pledge and donate money from your reserves. Like if you're really serious about making things equitable, then support 
institutions outside of the continent. And that's, I think, in a way that feels radical, but in a way it's possible. This is the end of the episode. If you are interested to read more about Wendy's reviews or curatorial projects, visit wendyvogel.net.